Welcome to Harrison Church. We have an urgent need for assistance with Room in the Inn, especially volunteers who are available on Thursday mornings. If you're interested in helping out, visit us online at harrisonchurch.org to sign up. Last week, Pastor Shane took us through part one of his new series on Revelation. This week, part two of Making Sense of Revelation. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to move this chair on this side. I don't know. It's just how I am. Um, If you are, uh, whoa, don't want to do that either. If you are um, visiting with us today, yeah, this almost reminds me of a couple weeks ago in the sanctuary or a few months ago that something actually caught on fire. That was cool. Uh, If you're visiting with us, uh, you can tell I'm seated here. I don't normally sit down when I preach, and uh, you are right now in part two of a series, uh, kind of a teaching series that was started last week on the letter of Revelation or the book of Revelation, the last document of the New Testament. And uh, man, I threw a lot of information at the body last week and a lot to take in. Some of you said that you had to watch the sermon twice and that's fine. And uh, what I thought we, were, we would do these next few weeks is just take a tour together through this last book of the Bible. So, much, so many questions about it and uh, what my, my goal is, how I'm thinking of myself as the tour guide. Look at this, and look at this, and look at this, and we'll just kind of keep moving through, so it's not necessarily a a sermon. Now, we established uh, at least three things last week about the letter of Revelation, and uh, see if I can refresh your memory. First thing we established is that we do know that the letter of Revelation is a apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic literature, which in the ancient Jewish world uh, was the language of resistance, especially political resistance. And in John's day, he is resisting the Roman imperial system, the powers of domination, the ideologies. That's number one. Number two, we established that this work is what we call a prophecy. Prophecy. In other words, in in ancient Israel, a prophet was not someone who was like Nostradamus necessarily, but this is someone who received a message from God and spoke it to God's people to address something that's going on in the day. And so John sees himself as a uh, prophet. He is speaking the words of Jesus, really, to these churches, which brings me to the last thing that we talked about. It's a letter. It is a letter written to how many churches? Does anybody remember? Seven churches located in seven specific cities. And John is writing these churches to address a specific situation that's going on. So We're going to take a look now at a few of these uh, churches, the message that John believes that Jesus is speaking to these congregations. You will notice, uh, if you have an order of worship, I put on the back where you you can have some notes. You'll see a little map here. Do you see that map? I know it may may be difficult to see here. I just wanted you to see the cities. You'll notice where Ephesus begins right here on the coast of the Aegean Sea. This is Turkey, what we would call modern-day Turkey. All John does is he's moving up, and then he comes right back down. But what we're going to do is take a little quick route. We'll start with Ephesus. We'll end with uh, Laodicea. That's a hard word to pronounce. Uh, but let's, let's take a look. Let's hear what John, Jesus, is speaking to these congregations. If you'll turn with me to chapter 2, you have your insert. You can look there. Chapter 2, verse 1, really just before that. Um, Jesus is speaking here, and Jesus says to the angels... Uh, of the church in Ephesus, Jesus says this to this congregation. I know your works, your toil, 
your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. Okay, now we don't know exactly what Jesus is commending here, the specific things. We can, we can hazard a guess, though, uh, that this congregation seems to be very insistent. They're doing a very good job of upholding what we would call like uh, high ethical standards, uh, high moral standards, and they seem to be upholding what we would call high doctrinal standards, doctrine, teaching standards, biblical standards, in other words. Uh, John says Jesus is saying to them, hey, you do a good job, you don't tolerate any immorality in your congregation, and you know, you're making sure that those who are claiming or who want to be apostles are examined thoroughly. Now, an apostle in the ancient world is kind of like what I am, what Kyle is, a little bit different, but just work with me on that. These are clergy. They founded churches. And John is saying, you're doing a good job testing these people out, making sure that they're really called by God. That's important. I mean, I was tested for 12 or 13 years by the church. I could have become a brain surgeon in that time. Uh, Kyle, in many ways, is undergoing kind of a testing, a kind of examination, and this is important. Uh, You know, the church wants us as clergy and for you to know that our job as pastors, it is not to spout off our opinions on things. You know what our real job is? Especially in a context like this, our primary job is to pass down to you the teachings of the church uh, and the traditions of the church that we have received so that we can pass them on to you so that you can apply them to your life, so that we can pass it down to the next generation. And we have to be tested on this. It's not enough for someone to kind of walk in and say, I think God's called me to ministry, but I don't care about that theology stuff because I just want to help people. I'm channeling a a teacher of mine who said, saying something like that would be like saying, I I want to be a doctor, but I don't care about that anatomy and physiology stuff. I want to help people. Uh, Sorry. So, so, So doctrine really does matter. Yeah, it, it means something, and, and we need to be tested on this. So this church is doing a good job with that. Uh, but then what does Jesus say in verse 4? <laughs> but, there's always a but, isn't there? Uh, you will notice if you read some of these uh, uh, verses this week before uh, you came today, if you received my email, I said, read chapter 2. You'll notice in certain of these messages to these churches, there's a pattern. Like Jesus will begin by saying, hey, this is what you're doing well, but here's where you need to improve. And it's almost like Jesus is giving a performance evaluation to these congregations. You ever had a performance evaluation? It always begins with saying, well, we're glad you're here. You're doing a good job. But then by the time you end, you're depressed because then they say, well, this is where you need to, this this is your room for improvement. So Jesus is doing the same thing. Listen to what he says. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Hmm. Now again, we don't know specifically what John or Jesus is referring to here. But here's, here's, here's a good guess. That this congregation was doing a great job of upholding their moral standards. And, and their doctrinal standards. So much so that they were actually forsaking what really matters, which is love and mercy and compassion 
They were so insistent, they had to be right, that they forgot what Jesus had said even in the Gospels, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, love, compassion. Can this happen in churches today? Absolutely. We can apply this. Right? Doctrine matters. It's something. It's not everything. Jesus actually calls us to be compassionate too. And then Jesus says, I want you to repent of this. Repent of this. Change. Remember who you are, what I've called you to be. But then Jesus will say in verse 7, and you might want to circle this word, to everyone who conquers. Do you see that? To everyone who conquers. Just circle that word. Uh, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Uh, but the word conquer in the book of Revelation means something different than what we think it might mean. But we have to put that word in context. All right, so that's that congregation. But let's continue with our performance evaluation. Uh, let's look at the next, uh, next verses in uh, chapter, in verse 8 and 9. Uh, Jesus is writing to uh, the church in Smyrna. You can look on your map where that is. And Jesus says this to this church. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. Now, right off the bat, we can say something about the profile of this particular congregation. Number one, we know they're afflicted. If you had to guess what they're being afflicted from, what would you say? You might want to guess? Yeah, well, could be. Not necessarily wealth. We'll get back to that, though. The Romans, the authorities. And we know that was happening in the ancient world. So they're afflicted, but we also know that they were materially poor. They actually weren't wealthy. Think about this. If you read, there's a passage in the letter of James that says, God has chosen the materially poor in this world to be rich in faith. You see the, you see the paradox there? And so here we have an afflicted church that's materially poor, and yet Jesus says, you're actually what? You're actually very wealthy. You're actually rich in many ways. But then John says this uh, in verse 9. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Ow! Lovely insult, John. Okay, now, at first blush, this almost sounds in our ears like uh, what we call anti-Semitic, you know, uh, anti-Jewish. Sounds that way to us, doesn't it? I get that ring. I don't know if you do. Here's what's important, and you may want to make a note here, is that John, the writer of Revelation, is thoroughly Jewish. He's probably writing to people who are Jewish. Christianity became a non-Jewish phenomenon pretty much later, but there may have been Gentiles, non-Jews here, but John's Jewish. So who are these Jews who are not really Jews who say they are Jews? Well, we can only hazard a guess, but in the context, these people are those who seem to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, as John believed Jesus was the true Messiah. But these Jews... Because of the afflictions going on in this congregation and in this area, these are people who are willing to um, compromise a little bit with the Roman authorities, with the Roman system. Why? To save their neck. 
John's saying that's not what real believers should do. Remember, we go back to John as an apocalyptic writer. Apocalypticists always saw the world black or white. There's no middle ground. You are either true or you are false. And so right here we're seeing John do the same thing. There are some people here in your congregation who might be willing to compromise with the Romans a little bit to save their necks. And John thinks that is a betrayal uh, to the highest uh, degree. But then John says this in verse 10. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Beware. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. What John knows is that unlike some in this church who are compromising, what might happen to those in this congregation who refuse to compromise? What might happen to them, he's saying? Yeah, you, you, you might be thrown into prison. The devil might round you up. Now, the devil in this case is not the literal pitchfork and tail. It's anyone who represents whom? The Roman imperial system, okay? They're going, to, they're going to arrest you if you resist. But, John says, it'll only be for 10 days. Now, is he meaning literal 10 days or figurative? We don't know, but he's saying it will only be for a little bit of time. And then John says to this poor, afflicted, persecuted congregation, whoever conquers, doesn't he? Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. There's that word conquer again. Circle that word conquer in your notes or in your Bible. Um, let's put this word conquer into context in the book of Revelation. Now, some of you read the King James Version, and uh, it, it won't be translated as conquer. It'll be overcome, whoever overcometh. This goes back to uh, what I mentioned last week, that hymn, we shall overcome, right out of Revelation. And it's fitting we're actually talking about that. We're on the eve of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We shall overcome. Now, what does conquer or overcome mean in this book? Well, I I don't have the actual verse for you. Uh, If you do have your Bible, I want you to turn with me. And if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. I'll just read this out loud to you. Uh, In chapter 12, verse 11, if you've got your Bible and can see it, Chapter 12, verse 11. And this is really critical to get. Um, If you read Revelation 12 in its entirety, John sees this great vision. And he sees Satan being cast down from heaven. He sees evil defeated in the world. And he sees the saints of God kind of sharing in this defeat of evil in the world. And in verse 11... Uh, John hears an angel saying this, but they, the saints, the Christians, they conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They conquered the devil, they conquered, the saints did, through the blood of the lamb and through the word of their testimony, their witness. Now, um, Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus is often depicted in Revelation as a lamb. And that really means something. Uh, and we're going to look at that next week. But, but here's what you need to know. Um, this is just one instance and one example. To conquer in the book of Revelation means to keep one's faith, to maintain 
one's allegiance to Jesus Christ, even in the face of suffering or worse. Jesus is the one who conquers in the Revelation, but how? This is not a trick question. How did Jesus conquer evil? He suffered, didn't he? He died. And yet because he was willing to suffer and because he died, what did God do on the third day? Raised him in victory, okay? So, so here, here's, here's something that's very curious. In the letter of Revelation, and we're going to see this again next week, really, the victors in Revelation are the victims. The victors are the victims. In other words, the true victors John sees around the throne of God are those who kept the faith, who pledged their allegiance to Jesus in a day that demanded allegiance to whom? The Roman emperor. So what John is already doing with this word conquer that occurs at every message to every church except one is saying to them, hey guys, you might pay the ultimate price for swearing your allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. And what John wants to understand, these churches to understand, is that are you Ephesus Church, Smyrna Church, Pergamum Church, are you willing to die? Are you willing to die for your allegiance to Christ? John would say to us this morning, are you, Harrison, do you have such a faith that you are all in, that you won't even consider your life if your faith was threatened, if death was really a threat leveled against you, would you? That's just something that you have to really absorb. But John is being serious here. You know, we, we, we kind of think, kind of going on a tangent, we, we, we kind of think that, uh, you know, what Jesus really wants is just a little part of our lives. He wants a few minutes a day or, you know, maybe a day a week or an hour on Sunday. But no, Jesus wants everything, doesn't he? Uh, Jesus told his disciples, whoever wants to follow me must take up his or her what? Cross. In the ancient world, man, that was an instrument of death. And, and John, or Jesus, through John, is conveying the same message that are you willing to pay the ultimate price? That's what it means to conquer. But if you die faithfully, guess what God will do for you? He will raise you faithfully. You will be the true victor, even though it looks like you're the victim. But that's what the word conquer means. Um... Okay, I need to start wrapping things up a little bit. We've got two more churches to look at. But you see that there's a general pattern going on here. But the Samaritan church, poor congregation. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't criticize that poor congregation. He doesn't say, but. Ah, he loves them because they are already enduring something, even though there are some in that church who might be willing to compromise. They care about their safety. Okay. Let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse, let's see, 12. Yep. We'll look at the next message to another congregation in the city of Pergamum. And, and Jesus says this in verse 13. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. You've got to love his language. Uh, yet, you are holding fast to my name. 
There's your affirmation. Now, Jesus has affirmed. What do you think he's getting ready to do? (laughs) Well, here's where you need room for improvement. So let's look. He says this, but I have a few things against you. Great. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. That's weird. We're going to put that in context. And then John goes on to mention in verse 15, so you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. What in the world is going on here? There's a lot to kind of keep in mind. First, what does Satan's throne mean? Here's what's interesting. If you were a tourist to the ancient city of Pergamum, you would have found right downtown a temple, um, a shrine, a monument to the Roman emperor. Right there in Pergamum. You can visit it to this day. I think it's in ruins. But you would have been able to visit a temple to the Roman emperor. And it was required or demanded that everybody who was a part of the Roman Empire to go to that temple every so often to make some sacrifices, to offer some prayers on behalf of the Roman Emperor. Why? So that you would satisfy the gods of the Roman Empire. Because if you didn't pray, you might make them mad. And if you made the gods of the Roman Empire mad, then things would fall apart, and then they would look for people to blame. They might come after you. Now, uh, remember, Caesar in those days, about the first century, was believed to be divine. He was considered to be the son of God. And, of course, Christians believe who's the son of God? Jesus. Do you see the tension? Right? But the reason, okay, let me back up. Historians now refer to this idea of going to the Roman temple where the image of Caesar would have been paying your prayers, your respects, your sacrifices. We call that the imperial cult. The imperial cult. You can Google this. This is historical fact. The reason the Roman Empire wanted people to be a part of the imperial cult is because it reinforced one's allegiance to the Roman Empire. And see, if you believe that Caesar's divine... And you're paying your respects at the, at the temple where Caesar's image is. Well, whatever Caesar wants has to be whose will. It's the will of the gods. But how do you think John would feel about that? Remember, there's no compromise here. John refers to that temple, that monument to Caesar as Satan's throne. Now, that will become very apparent as we get later on to this book. I mean, man, he is just, he is radical. Now, You'll notice if you go back to verse 14, there are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Okay. Balaam was a character in the Old Testament. And he was purported to have caused some Israelites to lapse into idolatry or to the worship of a false god. So the teaching of Balaam, John's addressing it, are people within this congregation who are probably causing people to lapse into idolatry, being willing to pay respects to whom? That image of Caesar. 
the teaching of Balaam. You're causing people to err. And the Nicolaitans that are mentioned a little bit later in verse 15, you know, we don't have any historical record of them, but we can probably say that maybe there was a teaching going on that maybe we, maybe, maybe we as Christians can accommodate things. Maybe we can pledge allegiance to Caesar and to Jesus. Maybe there's a middle ground. But John's writing apocalyptic literature. Is there a middle ground for John? There's no middle ground. There is no accommodation. It's either all in for Jesus or, uh (laughs) uh-oh, you you might be in trouble for this. For John, there's only a theology not of accommodation but of resistance. Okay. Last uh, church that we're going to look at, and uh, I'll wrap things up our time together. Um, We're going to look at the last church. It's in the third chapter. And it is in verse 14 is where it begins. And this is the uh, church that Jesus is sending a message to, the Laodicea. Laodicea, that's so hard for me. Church L. Laodicea. Okay, this is the final message. And if you look with me in chapter 3, verse 15, here's what Jesus says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Ouch. This church is Listerine to Jesus. Hey, that's that's a harsh image. Now, here's what's interesting. You might want to make a note. This church, there's no affirmation. It's all criticism. The church of the Laodiceans, all criticism. The other church is Sardis. That's all criticism as well, but we didn't look at that. Uh, One of our our youth leader is from Sardis Presbyterian. He has fun with that because Jesus calls the Sardis church in in Revelation, you're dead. You think you're alive, but you're dead. The The Laodiceans, okay, but why? Why does Jesus call this congregation lukewarm? Well, let's look at verse 17. Here's why. Jesus calls them lukewarm. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. In other words, this congregation is an affluent congregation. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-oh, that's a problem. Now, we do know, if you read your history of uh, Laodicea, it was a very prosperous city filled with working professionals it was a banking center in those days it trafficked in all kinds of luxuries and all kinds of luxurious commodities and very prosperous and so this was a prosperous congregation and notice what Jesus says about this congregation a little bit later Jesus says he's unimpressed by their wealth he says uh, you are wretched Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Another ouch. Now, notice the contrast here. Here's a rich congregation that Jesus calls poor, and the Samaritans was a poor congregation that Jesus called rich. Wow. Now, here's what we need to understand. There is a, this understanding that uh, John is writing to all the churches, and every Christian that John's writing to is suffering persecution. Now, based on this, is that true? No. Some, church, some Christians were doing quite well. Uh, they kind of liked the way things were arranged. 
They liked the way Rome was arranging the economy and everything else, and Jesus is warning them. Uh, but once again, as we wrap up, we see Jesus right here at the end uh, continuing his teaching from the Gospels on the dangers of wealth. This should not be a surprise to us. Uh, there was a blogger not too long ago who says that wealth doesn't create happiness, it just creates choices. So, so if you've if you got wealth you've got more choices. There are more things that you can do. There are more options. There are more lifestyle decisions that you can uh, generate for yourself. And the people of this Laodicean church, well, they had more options. They were able to use their wealth on luxuries, on comforts. And, and Jesus says that the problem is that their, their luxuries have made them such that they don't even need God. Yeah? You say, I'm rich, I prospered, and I need nothing. They, they don't even need God. And isn't it interesting that Jesus calls this affluent congregation the lukewarm one? That of all the churches, it's this affluent congregation that's the most apathetic, the most uninterested, kind of, huh, whatever. And the reason for that may very well be because they had more choices. Uh, they, they, could, they could put Jesus over here and they've got other lifestyle choices over here, but they're not all in. That's just tough on on this affluent congregation, but there's hope. Look with me now in verse 20. Jesus says to this affluent congregation, but I stand at the door and I am knocking. If you will open the door, I'll come in to you. Now, I find this fascinating that last week Jesus says he walks in the midst of the churches. If you were here last week, we talked about that, that Jesus is right here in the midst of the churches. But notice the tension in this one. Here's an affluent congregation, but is Jesus in the midst of them? No. Where is he? He's on the outside. He's trying to get in. It's as if their luxury and their wealth have pushed him out. And he's saying, if you let me in, though, if you let me in, I'll, I'll dine with you, I'll eat with you, I will fellowship with you. But there's a warning to this affluent church. And the warning is, if you let me in, though, you're, you're going to have to change. You've got to open your life to something radical, to something hard. But if you open your life, if you open your wallet, I'll come in. But if you let me come in, you're going to have to join the resistance and take the risk of faith. Well, we'll ask the musicians to come back. We've got one last song. But the question that I want you to really think about as we leave of, you know, of all the messages Jesus sends to these churches, in your own mind, I want you to think, which one do you think applies to us? Are we the Ephesian church? Do we care more about doctrine than we do about love? Are we the Smyrna church? Are we poor, being afflicted? Uh, are we the Pergamum church? Are we accommodating a little bit? Or are we the affluent congregation that's a little lukewarm? I'll leave that to you. But the thing that we want to kind of catch the drift of is that John is saying, my fellow believers, there is no way you can have the best of both worlds. You can't have the kingdom of God and think you can have Caesar's kingdom too. I want you to decide what's it going to be. Don't, don't be lukewarm. Be all in. And you will conquer. You will share in God's victory. Let us pray. Well, gracious and loving God, we are in awe of your word and of your message to the churches 2,000 years ago that still apply to us today. 
I pray that we will leave here with the words of John ringing in our ears, that we will be full-fledged, 100%, completely devoted, dedicated, all-in, conquerors for Christ. That we will surrender our lives to him in such a way that we will resist peacefully and in love. Shape us to be his witnesses that we will not even try to protect our lives even unto death, knowing that if we die with Christ, we will reign with him through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Join us next week for part three of Pastor Shane's series on Revelation. For more information, visit us online at harrisonchurch.org or find us on Facebook at Harrison Church.